And now to introduce today's speaker, we are joined by Dr. Jonathan Purnell, Professor of Medicine at Oregon Health and Science University. Dr. Purnell also attended medical school at OHSU, then went on to do internal medicine residency at University of Vermont and a fellowship in endocrinology at University of Washington. Dr. Purnell is also board certified in obesity medicine. His research areas of interest include understanding the causes and consequences of obesity, metabolic syndrome, dyslipidemia, and diabetes in humans. Dr. Purnell is the medical director of the Interdisciplinary Weight Management Program and also a member of the Knight Cardiovascular Institute Preventive Cardiology Group at OHSU. And both of these um, include physicians who provide integrated management of patients with obesity, diabetes, and cardiovascular disease. We are delighted to have Dr. Purnell join us for Grand Rounds today. Thank you. Thank you, Laura. Uh, and uh, thank you for inviting me and giving me the opportunity to present today. Something that wasn't on my CV was that I actually worked for Kaiser as an internal medicine doc for three years. So I feel your pain, primary care docs. Um, before I start, my uh, disclosures are that I do consulting work with Novo Nordisk and Beringer Illingheim, uh, and I will be discussing some medications off-label, potentially if not during the actual talk, then during the question and answer. And what I tell my trainees is that my goal uh, for the end of our discussion, typically when we're talking about obesity, is to come away with an appreciation of obesity as a chronic disease. One that we manage just like every other chronic disease that we have in our practice, like hypertension or diabetes. And I hope to give you, if you haven't been exposed to it, some of the rationale behind that. So we'll start with the physiology and the pathophysiology of weight regulation, um, something that's not taught in medical schools very well. And I give a, like not a 30,000 foot view, but actually 60,000 foot view on that. Uh, and then a little bit on the update on the epidemiology of obesity and obesity complications, followed by kind of the meat of the discussion, um, the approach to management of patients with overweight and obesity, and then a, um, a little case vignette at the end that I hope will kind of drive home some of my points. So starting with physiology and pathophysiology, one of the hallmarks of all chronic diseases, whether again, it's hypertension or diabetes or hypercholesterolemia, is that they start off fundamentally, their basis is in some sort of vital life process, some homeostatic regulated system that's there for a normal purpose, uh, to keep us upright when we stand up, to make sure that when we're outside sweating that we don't get too dehydrated um, for hypertension. But that physiology at some point, um, for reasons we'll talk about in a little bit, goes off, becomes a pathophysiology and then leads to an alteration in whatever that homeostatic or allostatic set point is at a higher level typically. Um, and then as a result of that exposure, that chronic um, uh, persistent change in that pathophysiology, something bad happens. What the World Health Organization uh, calls an adverse health uh, impact. Now, it doesn't happen in everybody. Not everybody with high cholesterol or high glucose develops a complication but it will increase your risk. And that's the important part because we're about prevention uh, in 90% or 100% of our patients if possible. So I'm gonna try to convince you that obesity follows that metric. And this idea that 
uh, obesity, or actually a better name is adiposity, uh, follows a particular BMI metric is simply an accident of history back in the 1980s where a bunch of experts got together and decided BMI would be the standard. Uh, and so I just want to have you appreciate in one slide that we come to that it, it's also regional distribution of your weight independent of your BMI. And now as we understand it with advanced imaging techniques, ectopic uh, accumulation of fat, say in liver like NAFLD or muscle and um, extra biocellular lipids. So what governs our energy intake? What, as, what governs our body weight? All of us. Those of us who are normal weight in this society and those of us who are overweight and obese. Well, it's really an interaction between three major organ systems in the, in the body. Uh, command central is your brain, or our brain, uh, hypothalamus and brainstem, which is receiving sensing input, um, uh, peripheral input from the GI system, as well as the fat tissue. And what I want to do is sort of walk you through the biology behind um, this sensing, these sensing systems and what they mean for our sort of day-to-day, month-to-month life. So as food passes through the stomach uh, into the intestine, that process of absorbing those nutrients across the lining of the intestine triggers secretion from enteroendocrine cells that are lining the intestine, a pattern of hormones. Um, These hormones serve many purposes. For our purposes today, they actually function as satiety factors by traveling through the blood up into the brain, binding to receptors on neurons in the hypothalamus and conveying a sense of fullness. Um, So uh, otherwise known as satiety. Now, at the same time that that meal is present, it actually suppress the the, uh, presence of those nutrients suppresses level or secretion of ghrelin. Ghrelin does the opposite, which is conveys a sense of hunger to the brain by binding to those same neurons and antagonizing them for the most part. Now, what I just showed you here, um, CCK, which is the classic one, insulin, which most people don't equate or don't understand or don't know that it's actually a satiety factor in addition to its other uh, aspects. Amylin, PYY, and GLP-1 are, are pretty much the more prominent hormones that we, are, we know about. But the largest endocrine organ in the body is the GI system. And what I tell my trainees and medical students is if you want to be an endocrinologist, study the gut because this is where the action is and this is where the future will be in terms of therapeutics across the spectrum of chronic diseases. These um, peptides that I'm showing you here represent a partial list of what we know are secreted by the gut or released by the gut or absorbed by the gut uh, in response to nutrients and can govern both appetite regulation and metabolism, lipid and glucose metabolism. There are over 100 different peptides secreted by the GI tract, and that was as of 2000. So when those nutrients um, are absorbed, hit the bloodstream and hit our brain, what our brain is seeing is a confluence of these signals. Uh, We oftentimes talk about a satiety factor as if there is only one, CCK, GLP-1. But actually, there's a summation effect going on. So the brain is integrating these signals. And this schematic shows what our brain is sort of experiencing in terms of uh, of those signal intensity, such that as we eat a meal, there's a peak in the uh, fullness hormones where our brain says, okay, that's enough, we're satisfied. 
And then at that time, that's the peak suppression of ghrelin, followed by putting down the fork and then um, uh, having the absorption process wrap up, fullness hormones drop off, and then usually about 90 minutes after the meal, the ghrelin hormone starts to rise and somewhere around three to four hours, there's a tipping point where that signal for fullness is dropping off enough where the hunger signal is rising and we go, wow, it's been three hours since lunch, let's grab some, some dinner. Or, you know, boy, it's been a while since I got up and rounded on my patients, let's go grab a snack before we go to grand rounds. What determines the level of those hormones is the calorie content in that meal. So the more calories you eat during that meal, the more the hormones that are secreted. I will submit that we don't count our calories. I don't, never have. Yet my brain still knows how many calories I need to balance against the fact that I took the max in and walked in here today versus yesterday sitting in front of my computer handling some crisis at work. So our brain knows how much we're eating, not because we selectively chose to carve out a piece here or I ate almost all my bagel with cream cheese, but not all of it. Our brain knows how much we're eating because the, of the levels of these hormones that are achieved and then the suppression of the ghrelin. So let's say I was rushing and I didn't have enough, uh, say in my refrigerator that day for my normal meal, I had only half of what I normally would have. So instead of seeing a full measure of those fullness hormones, hitting my brain where it's looking for it. I'm only getting half those calories. Half of the ho uh, fullness hormones are hitting that brain and I'm only suppressing my ghrelin by half. So my brain's going, okay, uh, Laura, I see that food coming in. Where's the rest of it? It's not satisfied. And in addition to that, you get your ghrelin signal back faster. So instead of that breakfast carrying you through till lunch, you're rounding or seeing a patient, it's 10 a.m. and you're going, boy, God, I really could use that, that protein bar right now. So the important thing about this is that we don't count our calories, but our brain still knows how much we're eating based on the level of these hormones. For us to walk into our patient's room and simply say to them as a summation of all our knowledge, here's your 1,000 calorie a day diet, go in peace, is not a full understanding of what they're dealing with nor does it help them in the end. Um, but when we feel full and satisfied, so we don't count our calories, but our brain still knows how much is there. And these behaviors we exhibit, like putting down the fork because we're satisfied with the meal when we've achieved that level, or feeling hunger and cravings and looking for food uh, because it's been a while since we ate, are actually driven by internal biological signals. The, the party line is we can control these. You have willpower. You should be able to not think about food. But in the same way, the thirst gets activated and you're not going to be able to stop thinking about thirst when you're dehydrated until you do something about it. These signals are going to be present and active until the patient or we do something about them as well. So um, not only are the levels determined of this, I just want to point out that the receptor activation is also an important state um, in terms of how they receive those levels of the hormones. And all of these are at play as to like this integrative effect from the brain. So in addition to the gut hormone signals, uh, the fat tissue is also sending a signal in the form of leptin to the brain. Uh, leptin reflects the amount of weight we carry in terms of adipose tissue. It increases in response to increasing fat cell size, fat cell number, or both. Um, leptin levels also will 
uh, increase as you gain weight. More importantly, they will decrease as you lose weight. And our brains are integrating these two sets of signals continuously through the day, moment to moment, meal to meal, day to day to answer two questions. One, do you weigh what the brain thinks you should weigh? That's the leptin signal. The other is, are you eating sufficient calories to maintain that weight? Those are the gut signals that we see. And we call this part of the brain the set point um, because the job of the set point is to keep our weight within five pounds up or down or what our brain thinks we should weigh. And now the concept of the set point, although we apply it to weight regulation, is no different uh, from a set point we have for blood pressure that's normal or a blood sugar that's normal or an oxygen level that's normal or a hematocrit that's normal. It's a range, it's not an actual number. There's a range of weight that our brain thinks of as normal. But the job of this part of the brain is to keep it there. So if our brain senses that there's a drop in weight, leptin levels are going down, or drop in calorie intake, gut hormone levels aren't achieving what the brain was looking for, or both are happening because we happen to be hiking the Pacific Crest Trail, or because our patients are going to Weight Watchers, then the job of the brain will send emotion systems to limit the weight loss and bring you back again. Now I want to do a deep dive within the uh, hypothalamus because I'm going to be talking about pharmacologic management of obesity and it's important that those who are prescribing medications understand the basis for how the current medications work. So if we expand the hypothalamus and make a schematic of the most important areas, um, this is a uh, part adjacent to the third ventricle called the ventral medial hypothalamus and I'm going to focus on a level right below that called the arcuate nucleus. Um, within the arcuate nucleus are two sets of neuron neuronal bodies that uh, one of them contains POMC, proopiomelanocortin. POMC is responsible for manufacturing in this particular side of the brain, alpha MSH. For the endocrinologists in the office uh, in here and on, online, you'll recognize that this is also makes ACTH within the pituitary. But in this part of the hypothalamus, it makes alpha MSH under the direction of proprotein convertase enzyme, PCSK1. And then uh, alpha MSH binds to the melanocortin 4 receptor. And when that system is activated, when melanocortin 4 receptor is turned on, it results in a decrease in body fat mediated by an earlier sense of fullness while we're eating, a reduction in hunger. So that translates into an observed behavior, reduced food intake and an increase in energy expenditure, not by necessarily causing people to walk around more, but just increasing non-exercise activity thermogenesis. So um, next to those neuronal bodies in the same part of the, of the arcuate is another set of neurons that contain the peptides AGRP, agouti-related protein, and PY. Now these are basically the yin to the yang for the POMC. Think of them like alpha and beta cells in the islet cell that contain glucagon and insulin that are doing opposite with one another, sympathetic, parasympathetic nervous system innervations. This makes sense that the body would have systems that you know dampen down overactivity of one versus the other. But the NPY and AGRP system basically uh, in the form of AGRP is a competitive antagonist to the melanocortin-4 receptor. So when this system is activated, it blocks MSH's activity in the uh, paraventricular nucleus and instead activates the lateral hypothalamus um, systems that result in the opposite of POMC, which is an increase in food intake, increase hunger, 
decreased satisfaction with the total amount of, in your meal and uh, decreases in energy expenditure that patients can't control. So leptin and insulin, uh, but we'll focus on leptin, binds to its receptor at the uh, hypothalamus uh, in these neurons, uh, POMC, and activates that system. So as leptin levels increase, there's a decreased pressure on body weight through reductions in food intake and increases energy expenditure, and it dampens down the um, uh, NPYAGRP system. So conversely, when leptin levels drop, so when you're going through your alternate day fasting or you're in Ramadan or you're trying to lose weight, then there is a removal of the um, stimulation of the POMC system, a removal of the inhibition of the AGRP system, so the AGRP system becomes dominant. And so there's a pressure to come back on your body weight. These neurological circuit, this neurological circuitry is the basis for all the current anti-BC medications we have right now. They all work through this system, appetite control and dampening down the adaptive response for energy expenditure. So obesity and overweight, which is what I call pre-obesity, because you have to go through overweight before you develop obesity, results in our most fundamental understanding from leptin uh, onset of leptin resistance in the same way that diabetes results from insulin resistance. So in order to maintain euglycemia or restore homeostatic signaling for glucose, you need to increase your insulin level. You need to increase your insulin output. So when the neuron in the hypothalamus, it, you know, inside that neuronal body no longer sees adequate leptin signaling, then there has to be an increase in leptin levels in order to restore homeostasis again and, and get back into equilibrium. Now, the way to increase leptin levels, as we talked about, is to increase your body weight. So people, when they're developing leptin resistance, overweight and obesity, go through a period of positive energy balance. So they will eat more subtly, oftentimes. They don't know that they're doing it. You can't detect it because we can't, we're lousy at counting our calories anyway until they achieve a new homeostatic level with a higher leptin level, uh, in which they'll be in balance again. Um, and then uh, they will no longer be in positive energy balance. So it's inaccurate to say someone with overweight obesity is in positive energy balance um, or overnutritioned. They're actually back in homeostasis. Um, unfortunately, when that set point rises, it goes up on its own, but it doesn't come down on its own in the vast majority of people. Um, so the directionality change is one way, and that neuron that's receiving that higher level of leptin signaling doesn't know that that higher leptin level signaling is causing problems with diabetes, sleep apnea, joint issues, fatty liver, heart disease, heart failure, any of a number of 200 different complications. For all that neuron knows, that's a normal leptin level. So it will defend that leptin level just like it did at the lower weight. So. I'm going to turn now from physiology um, and try to give you some of that, that background and talk a little bit about epidemiology because it's looking fairly bleak. Um, this represents the latest data from the CDC showing the rates of obesity, which previously uh, for men and women and kind of that turquoise color, women had traditionally been higher than men. Now men and women are the same at about 40% of our population. So contrast that with um, diabetes. Diabetes currently affects 12% of our population. Now we have a disease, obesity, this is just BMI over 30, that affects 40% of the population. 
So I'm sure you've seen this in, in your patient populations too. Um, severe obesity, BMI of 40 or higher is increasing even faster. The important point about this is that um, if you're looking at um, people of color, people who are at risk or vulnerable from a health um, care uh, standpoint, uh, black women carry the highest rates of obesity, 60% uh, in our population. Hispanic men or women are behind at 50%. So back in uh, the late 1990s, the CDC put out its call to uh, basically normal weight or healthy weight 2000. CDC was hoping to institute uh, community-based changes that would allow people to make healthier choices, be more active, and that obesity be would be reversing by 2000. It has done the opposite. It has continued to increase. We have been lousy at making those changes on a population basis, and it has disproportionately affected people of color. So we have failed in several regards uh, in, that, in, that, in that manner. This is a paper that came out um, uh, a couple of years ago now in, in the New England Journal that I thought was interesting. Based on our current trajectories, where will we be in 2030? Um, now, this has been done before, and, and we thought, wow, this is like outrageous. It can't happen. Um, we haven't, but basically, what the, it, the previous predictors were actually true. Uh, we are exactly where it was predicted 15 years ago we would be, um, meaning that we really haven't achieved our maximal weight potential in an obesogenic environment. We're still waiting for, as a population, that to happen. But what they're what this one was projecting was that we're looking at um, over 50% obesity or around 50% obesity rates. Another way to look at this is that what that means by the time you hit about 60, 65, as I'll tell you, or as I'll show you in a minute, only 20% of the population will be healthy weight. 80% will be above that in overweight or obese status. Um, and it will disproportionately hit blacks and Hispanics. So a lot of what a lot of people don't appreciate, because we kind of think of developing obesity as binary, you either have it or you don't. But you do have to go through this period of overweight and before you get to obesity. And that overweight can express itself up until a peak age around 60, 65, as shown here. This is data from around the world showing peak ages of BMI over 30. So you can be normal weight in your teenage years, 20s, 30s, 40s, and still in your 50s, put on unwanted weight gain and develop obesity. And it's not because you let yourself go. It's not because you're not trying hard enough. Um, uh, it's because of the expression of leptin resistance and development of obesity. So if you look at a life course of weight for a lot of folks, um, if you see, if you happen to take care of kids and see uh, the youngest amongst us, that follows a traditional or a typical um, a truth, which is that the younger the onset of the obesity, the much stronger the genetic influence. And we'll talk about some of those that are currently available. Uh, if you screen for them, you'll, there's actually a new medications available for the youngest uh, patients. Um, this would be also true if we're talking, if I was giving a talk on familiar hypercholesterolemia, where you have a knockout, a heterozygote mutation within the LDL receptor. That's there from birth. A uh, kid with an LDL of 200 who's 12 years old isn't eating their way to, uh, to uh, 200 for LDL. So the youngest have the strongest genetic influences. Um, and then for women, there are three vulnerable times that we've come to appreciate, not that I could explain them. 
for the sort of neurologic window for the set point to rise for it to open. One of them is puberty, the other is pregnancy, and the third is menopause. And the menopausal transition when the weight gain occurs tends to be more centrally directed uh, around the waist. So when these uh, transition states, hormonal transition states occur the, during this open neurologic window for the weight set point rise, it then shuts. Now, for some women with pregnancy, about half of them will go back to their pre-pregnancy weight. The other half will remain above that. 30% will actually cross some metric from normal weight to overweight, overweight to obesity. It has nothing to do with breastfeeding. These are metrics or these are physiology exposure we're still trying to figure out. And if you want to go into research, this is a great area to be in. Men, we can just do it anytime. It doesn't really matter. Um, and that um, beer belly that we're famous for is actually has nothing to do with beer. So just like how much we weigh is primarily determined by our genetics, where we put it is also primarily determined by our genetics. And what I tell my medical students is, unfortunately, we tend to look like our parents eventually. So in terms of medical complications, I just want to show this because there are over 200 conditions that are associated with obesity. Obesity is upstream of the most detrimental conditions we treat in our uh, practices, diabetes being the first and foremost. If anybody talks about the diabetes epidemic, they're really talking about the past 10 to 15 years of the obesity epidemic. Um, dyslipidemia, heart failure, um, atrial fibrillation, uh, fatty liver, all uh, joint issues. These are all upstream. Obesity is upstream of these conditions. Um, I want to highlight that obese, that diabetes is a pretty special case with weight, with this relationship to weight, because this is data from uh, Walter Willett's group a number of years ago that looked at the relationship between diabetes risk and BMI. And what you can see, if you're looking at hypertension or heart disease, there's kind of the traditional rise as you go through the normal BMI category, 20 to 25. But with diabetes, the risk for diabetes extends well into the normal weight category for both men and women. And what we believe is happening there is something I mentioned earlier, which is that where we carry our weight, not just how much total weight we have, is instrumental in expressing um, some of the most common things we see, including diabetes, dyslipidemia, and um, cardiovascular risk. So this is a schematic that I like to show that um, indicates how the you know, accumulation of visceral fat, showing that dark area there underneath on the top, inside the uh, abdominal uh, wall area, uh, that represents basically an accumulation of, of fat tissue that has a pipeline right to the liver through the portal vein. That's different from subcutaneous fat, which goes develops and dilutes itself into the uh, SVC uh, or the IVC. Um, that, that fat from the visceral fat goes right to the liver. Now, if the liver can handle that, you're fine. If the liver can't handle it, then it accumulates in the liver. Um, and that process of accumulation um, is known to be associated with insulin resistance of the liver. So insulin resistance of the liver manifests in two ways. One is that there's an increase in hepatic glucose output in the fasting state, as well as in the postprandial state. And also there's an increased release of triglyceride containing particles. So when you develop central weight gain, visceral fat accumulation, 
then that leads to um, an increase in, in free fatty acid substrate to the liver. And basically, in those people who have uh, susceptibility to it, uh, impaired glucose tolerance, type 2 diabetes, and dyslipidemia. Now, both subcutaneous fat and visceral fat will also lower adiponectin levels, which we don't talk about very much, but it's still a very important physiologic regulator of glucose uptake. We think that has more to do with the signaling system in the muscle, um, reducing glucose uptake in the periphery. But this is just a, a, a short schematic to show that there will be people for whom they will not meet criteria on a BMI, but still would benefit from weight loss through reduction in visceral adipose tissue. That you're, right now, we don't have anything selectively that does this. So you, you can manage that though with total body weight loss. So how do we, knowing that body weight and obesity, body weight's regulated, obesity is a chronic disease, how do we approach these patients with overweight and obesity? Well, the, with any chronic disease, we always want to start with lifestyle. We want to make sure that patients are, are making healthy food choices and being as active as they can be. And it's very important when you're starting this conversation to recognize the stigma that um, patients have experienced themselves, uh, not only through the general public, but in provider um, interactions as well. This comes from the American Academy of Family Practice um, that acknowledging obesity as a disease is like the first step in my mind towards giving patients empathy in the same way that, you know, um, uh, I've never had obesity, I've never had breast cancer, but I still express empathy to a woman if I was managing her breast cancer, that this must be awful, let me help you, uh, and we can take the next step. So uh, understanding that and overcoming our own biases, helping patients overcome societal biases by giving them the information is very important and making them feel like they are welcome within the um, practice. When I usually give this talk to primary care docs, there's uh, two hesitations, actually three. One is that, well, the meds aren't covered by insurance. We recognize that, um, we're working on that. The other is I don't have time, and I get that, because you've got all these other things that are going on, including the primary complaint they have, which might be a headache or something else that day. But the third is that I don't know how to start the conversation. How do I approach someone with obesity without offending them or um, actually uh, um, making an impact on what they're doing and, and seeming um, to know what I'm talking about. Well, the important thing again is to make them feel respected and not shamed. And that could be even subtle with body language. Using people first language like we do now for all chronic diseases, we don't talk about diabetics anymore. We talk about people with diabetes. Um, we don't talk about obese patients anymore, patients with obesity or who have overweight um, because they are not their disease. They're struggling with their disease and emphasize health, not just the amount of pounds weight loss, but what this means for them and uh, follow metrics along those lines. Um, I don't use the word diet. I don't use the word exercise. Um, I really focus on healthy food choices and trying to increase activity, which I think living in Portland is actually nice to be able to do because we have the public transportation system here. Uh, even just getting out and taking the bus or the max requires that you walk a block or two usually to get there, as opposed to 100 feet to your car. So, but the hallmark, the, the, um, the, uh, the pinnacle of lifestyle intervention was published a number of years ago now um, in the randomized control trial called the Diabetes Prevention Program. 
So if you want to cite evidence that weight loss benefits patients, this is the study to cite. Um, patients were randomized who had overweight obesity with prediabetes to one of four arms. There's only three that ended up completing the study. One is just the usual care and placebo. The other is a metformin arm, which is the basis for a lot of times uh, clinicians saying, oh, you have prediabetes, let's give you metformin. That data came from this study. And then the other arm was a lifestyle intervention where patients were seen by dietitians um, pretty much weekly for the first six months, monthly and quarterly after that for four years. They had exercise physiologists working with them. They were exercising five to six days a week. They were uh, demonstrating the uh, adherence to these uh, interventions with VO2 max increases. This is pulling out all the stops. This is what you can do in the most ideal scenarios. And what I want to point out was that in this in this ideal scenario, at one year, patients lost 7% of their body weight, but they'd already plateaued. Now, continuing that intervention resulted in ultimately a 4% weight loss. So this isn't failure of the patients to adhere to the recommendations. This isn't patients not being honest with you. This isn't them lying to themselves. Um, this is physiology in action. This is the brain sensing changes in not only food intake, but also energy expenditure and making compensatory changes to keep them within a range of what the brain thinks of as normal. Now, the reason why we're so excited about this is because this amount of weight loss resulted in a 60% reduction in progression to type 2 diabetes compared to placebo. Actually, twice as good as metformin. So if you're really being honest and you had access to a dietitian or something like that, you wouldn't necessarily reach for metformin first for someone with prediabetes. You'd say, you know, let's uh, follow the diabetes prevention program. So realistically, what lifestyle will help someone with obesity do is go typically from the top end of the range that they're, um, uh, they have potential for to the bottom part of that range, typically on the order of about 4% weight loss long-term. Unfortunately, what lifestyle alone will not do for the vast majority of patients that we care for is correct them as close as possible to a healthy weight range. Not happening in the majority of patients. <clears throat> um, so what I oftentimes recommend to clinicians when they say, what do I talk about? Just be prepared to talk about something more than just diet and exercise. Um, uh, and when you go to them. So let's then turn to medications. The guidelines for using anti-BC medications in practice have been around for almost a decade now. Um, obesity has been acknowledged to be a chronic disease for nearly two decades. Um, this is uh, a recommendations that came out for family practice in 2013, where BMI over 27 with a comorbidity or 30 and higher patients are eligible for anti-obesity anti medication use. What I'm saying is not new. Currently, we have um, six medications that are approved by the FDA that are considered safe and reasonably effective for long-term management of overweight and obesity. I've listed them here. Um, in roughly uh, ascending order of efficacy, so the top one there, bupropion and naltrexone is known, is uh, marketed under Contrave, uh, about four to 5% weight loss long-term. Liraglutide, uh, marketed under Saxenda, uh, GLP-1 receptor agonist, about six to 7% weight loss. 
Fentramine and the Fentramine plus topiramate combination, which is marketed under Qsimia, about 10% weight loss. And the newer GLP-1 receptor agonist, longer acting, semaglutide, also known as Wegovy. Um, and then the, the latest one, which is currently in front of the FDA, terzepatide, now marketed under Manjaro for type 2 diabetes, are looking at 15 to 20% weight loss. So we are now in an era of advanced therapeutics for weight management where we are close to approaching what you can get with a sleeve gastrectomy, long-term. Um, I'm gonna talk a little bit more about the set melanotide, but it's important for you to understand that, as I mentioned before, that when I showed you that neurocircuitry board of the hypothalamus, that all these drugs work there to potentiate the signals uh, that are coming in. It's giving this patient a sensation of increased uh, fullness. Uh, so it takes fewer calories to reach that level where they get uh, satiated and it dampens down the hunger signal. So that's how these work. Now, in the old days, this was called appetite suppressants, which is fine, it's accurate. I usually call them appetite control medications because that's what it's doing. It's allowing the patient to have an appetite appropriate for five, 10, 15, 20% weight loss without activating those compensatory mechanisms to come back up again. So I just wanna highlight um, the actual data uh, from some of the trials that have come out in the last couple of years. This is semaglutide uh, 2.4, also known as Wegovy, which is looking at about a 15% weight loss with intention to treat analysis. A little bit better if you look at those people who stay on it long-term. Um, <clears throat> this is the terzepatide data that just came out last summer that looks at uh, about 20% weight loss. And what you can see is that it takes a full year for patients to achieve uh, stability in terms of their weight response. So this is something that you're gonna continue um, and patients will continue to experience weight loss on average out to that 20% timeframe. As I mentioned, there is a um, set melanotide. I, I didn't um, talk about it more, but this is also marketed under a, uh, under a name called Imsevri. It is a specific agonist for the monocortin 4 receptor. And if you have a known mutation in the leptin receptor, the green one, uh, PCSK or PCSK1 or POMC, where you're not able to manufacture enough MSH, set melanotide um, or imsevery will take its place. So you can, there's a um, uh, commercial uh, um, uh, genetics company called Prevention Genetics who runs a panel, will look for these things. And I do this pretty frequently in my clinic for childhood onset obesity, which has the strongest risk for this. Um, also BMI is over 40 as well for free. <clears throat> and basically that uh, improves um, appetite control and energy expenditure. And if you look at, this is the, the patients who met criteria for this with POMC deficiencies, you're looking at 20 to 30% weight loss with this drug long-term as well. So just to summarize this part of it, lifestyle gets you about 4% weight loss long-term, uh, and that's adhering. Nowadays, with uh, advanced therapeutics, we're looking at up to 20% weight loss with uh, addition of medications to lifestyle. So this may be new to you, although the guidelines have been out for 10 years. Um, and there's actually been several studies of why uh, or sort of documenting this phenomena of low adoption rates of anti-obesity medications. And this is a study that came out a number of years ago now looking primarily at primary care docs uh, in the country. At the same time that the SGLT2 inhibitors came out and hit the guidelines 
for the American Diabetes Association. So the question these investigators had was, what was the adoption rate, appropriately so by guidelines, of SGLT2 inhibitors for the treatment of diabetes? And around the same time the guidelines for weight management came out, what was the adoption rate for anti-obesity medications? And what you can see is there's about an 80 to 90% appropriate adoption rate of SGLT2 inhibitors at this time, and a 1% adoption of anti-obesity medications. Now, this happens to particularly hit us hard in the Northwest, because I was very interested in the regionality of these prescribing habits. So if you were in the South, about 40 to 50% of the time, of that 1% who prescribed, 50 to 40 to 50% of the time, you were down in uh, South. Only 1% of that 1% were here in the Pacific Northwest. So that represents a you know, failure in our part in the medical schools to convey this physiology and understanding of obesity and chronic disease. That also reflects our peer-to-peer -peer, um, uh, interactions because if our mentors and our peers aren't using it, I'm not going to use it, um, but there's no reason not to. And there are other reasons for it too. Um, there's still people who conflate fentramine with fenfluramine. I still hear back uh, from my patients that their doc said, oh, fentramine is bad for your heart. So fenfluramine, part of fenfen, was bad for the heart. It got pulled from the market uh, in the 1990s. Fentramine has never been associated with increased heart attack risk. Um, yes, blood pressure and heart rate might go up in a few people, but um, FDA has kept it out on board and has approved it and is considered safe for long-term use. Um, there's a perceived need that these drugs require more follow-up, uh, which they don't necessarily than other drugs. Um, Fentramine is a Schedule Four drug, but has low abuse for potential. There's no evidence in a non-addictive population that this causes addiction or withdrawal. Um, and actually, if you, you are using uh, meds for ADHD like Concerta, Adderall, or Vyvanse, they're all scheduled too. Um, and they also have the same potential risk if you were going to evoke that for cardiac issues. Um, so there's also a misperception that the medications we use for management of obesity are only short term, that you only use them for three months or you do it for a year until you lose the weight and then you stop them. But we wouldn't give someone an ACE inhibitor for their hypertension drop their blood pressure down three months later and then take it away from them and say, oh, you can do this now. Um, you're on your own. So these are all lifelong. Um, but probably the leading one right now is the lack of insurance coverage. All currently approved FDA uh, anti-obesity medicines have been shown to improve cardio cardiometabolic risk factors. And some of them at lower doses have been shown to reduce cardiometabolic events too. So Contrave, uh, bupropion naltrexone was shown in a randomized controlled trial to be non-inferior for MACE outcomes, um, cardiac, um, heart attacks and strokes, meaning that it did not increase risk. Fentramine is non-inferior or reduced depending on which cohort study you want to look at. So there's evidence that shows you'll have fewer heart attacks and strokes taking it long-term in some cases. Um, loraglutide and semaglutide both approved at lower doses for diabetes in those randomized controlled trials for diabetes at lower doses have been shown to reduce both MACE outcomes and mortality, uh, 13 and 26%. So I would try to counter the narrative that these are you know, dangerous for you or they're not effective because they are effective and I don't, and the FDA, nor do I consider them dangerous. But weight loss is variable. And this is an important part because patients see, and as providers, we see that average result. We think, okay, that's what our patient's gonna get. But weight loss is variable in any intervention. So looking at that lifestyle intervention, there's a sizable 
proportion of them that gain weight, even though they're doing all the right stuff. Um, and a fair amount of them that lose a significant amount of weight, but that's not the norm either. And what happens when you add a medication to the lifestyle is you shift that over a little bit. And right now the best uh, approaches we have for meaningful, sustained and beneficial weight loss is with sleep gastric, mere gastric bypass. You still get variable weight loss with that, just that now almost everybody loses weight. But that's completely expected. Every chronic disease we manage, we don't expect one drug to work in everybody and you just dial up the dose and dial down the pounds. So that's not it. That's not expected in what we do. We just need to prepare our patients so that they're not disappointed and somehow incorporate that into their worldview that that's another example of their failure on their part um, uh, as that regard. So eventually, um, but I'm not going to talk about today, we could also, uh, I'm happy to come back, talk about surgery and devices. So with surgery and devices, you're looking at um, 25 to 30% weight loss with even better outcomes metrics uh, from cardiac standpoint, from mortality standpoint and such. But lifestyle is still a foundational uh, for management of all chronic diseases. I bring this up because people uh, who aren't used to this, are new to this area, still kind of get hung up on, well, they're just not doing the right stuff. And what I'm saying about using anti-obesity medications is you still need to do all that right stuff. It's just it's not going to be sufficient for the majority of people. Um, it is the beginning for the majority of patients you're going to you're going to treat, not the end. Um, and we no longer look at obesity medications and surgery as adjuncts, meaning they're um, you can do it or you don't have to do it. In the same way that we don't think of of uh, metformin as an adjunct, I mean, uh, uh, for lifestyle for diabetes management. Now, there's still a lot of people uh, who believe that. You know, behavioral uh, lifestyle or behavioral interventions really are the way to go. And that's what you, we just haven't figured out yet with behavioral lifestyle interventions what, what to do. And I want to point out this study uh, that used uh, semaglutide 2.4 milligrams that uh, had patients participate in one by Tom Wadden's group at Philadelphia in one of the best in, uh, intensive behavioral lifestyle programs that, that he could design. This is a man who's been doing it for his lifetime career. Um, and what, and then they were randomized while they were in that lifestyle program to either receive placebo or semaglutide. So when they looked at the weight loss, you get about that 7% weight loss in the first year or so that you saw with the diabetes prevention program. That's what you expect. Now you can see the trend going back up again. So in four years, we expect it to start to travel back up. With the semaglutide added to the behavioral weight loss program, they got you know, that 16% weight loss that we were talking about before. Now, if you look at just what the weight loss was to the participants in another randomized controlled trial, where all they got was eat healthy and be active from their doctor. So no intensive behavioral lifestyle program. What you can see is they also got 15% weight loss. So if you're looking at the amount of weight loss that the drug will do, regardless of whether you're doing intensive behavioral management or not, is the same. So Tom Wadden got up in front of the um, uh, um, obesity society this year and said, I really feel that obesity medications trump behavioral lifestyle interventions. Not that people can't do better, all of us can, in terms of the choices we make and how much activity we get, but that shouldn't be a reason to withhold medications anymore. And as I mentioned before, these are the current guidelines from the American Diabetes Association, first line therapy, is metformin and comprehensive lifestyle management concomitantly, not in sequence. 
So I have a lot of patients in whom I see them and I believe them when they tell me they're eating healthy, they're cooking at home, they're avoiding processed foods, they're exercising regularly. I don't say, well, give me six months and come back and show me you can lose weight. I say, okay, good, keep that up and let's go move, move, let's move on with the next step. So lifestyle is foundational, but insufficient. And I would say because the prevalence of obesity is 40% um, in our society, that the treatment for obesity and, and overweight has to be started in primary care. We can't have every patient who's eligible for medications referred to a referral center. In the same way, we can't have every patient with diabetes seen by our diabetes care centers. That would overwhelm them in a heartbeat. We don't have enough FTE for that. So what I'm trying to advocate for is, yes, we have a traditional approach of intensive lifestyle management, and then we go with someone with cardiometabolic issues, right to diabetes and lipid-lowering drugs. Well, because obesity is upstream from these things, let's have a new tool in our toolbox. Let's start with intensive lifestyle management. If they're doing it already, great. If they're not, see if we can get them to, to adhere to that. And then bring in options for medical or surgical management along with lifestyle management before we add in the other ones. And I'll just kind of go through a, a vignette um, to show you what I mean by this. So when I um, saw this lady when she weighed 287 pounds, she'd already been seen by my endocrine colleagues in general endocrinology, had a 24-hour urine cortisol, uh, TSH was normal at that time, and was told to eat less and exercise more. And that didn't help. So when I saw her, she had a BMI 44, she, uh, her complications were sleep apnea, osteoarthritis of her knee, her TSH remained normal at that point. She had no um, stigmata of Cushing's syndrome. She had a classic sort of metabolic syndrome profile in her lipids, and she had prediabetes, where her triglycerides were high and her HDL was low. So I started her on fentramine, a half a tablet, worked up to a full tablet. Um, saw her back about six months later, uh, and at that time, her lipid panel had improved and she had lost about 5% of her total body weight. The lipid panel had improved. Um, blood pressure was normal at that time. So that's certainly better than she was going before. She was going on an upward trajectory, at least locked her in and brought her down a little bit. So then I added in topiramate, starting 25 BID and working up to 100 BID, which is a poor man's version, generic version of Qsimia. Um, she was able to tolerate that. And now she was down about 10% from her body weight. Her um, triglyceride levels haven't had normalized, uh, but they were a whole lot better than they were before. Um, and her A1C uh, had come back down into the normal range and her blood pressure remained normal at that point. So if I'd been an endocrinologist and I was thinking about that, I might've started her on um, uh, metformin and give her some fish oil, maybe even gone to the point where I'd given her a phenofibrate or something. But instead, we managed her weight and we were able to achieve the same thing, two, two meds, but got the same effect. And what I'd like to convey to the primary care audiences is that you have a number of conditions, as I showed you before, that are downstream from weight management and could benefit from weight management oftentimes as a primary intervention. Um, my brother's an orthopedic surgeon, talks uh, fondly of the woman who got bariatric surgery. She was set for a total knee replacement and then got another five years out of that knee. So there are, are things you can do that are in your toolbox today to help manage these conditions that don't involve necessarily reaching for a statin or um, a metformin. So to learn more about this, if you are interested, 
um, I recommend three, uh, two sources. One is the um, uh, publications by the Endocrine Society on the science of obesity management that came out a couple of years ago. Um, there's a free online textbook written for endocrinologists uh, that includes, uh, called Endotext, that includes an obesity subsection um, that has 30 chapters uh, that cover weight regulation and pharmacologic management. It's updated every three years. It's kind of a slow version of up-to-date um, for endocrinologists. And then, uh, but it's free uh, once you just register for everybody. And then if you're interested in becoming board certified, uh, you'd like to go through the process of doing more deep dive and becoming recognized for your new knowledge, you can go to the American Board of Obesity Medicine. This is not accredited yet. We're working on establishing the necessary number of training programs across the country for this, um, but hopefully will be. So I'm going to end there and be happy to take any questions you might have. Thank you so much, Dr. Purnell. As expected, um, several comments and questions online as well as in the room. Uh, we'll take what we can get. Thank you so much for your talk. Um, I wanted to ask you a little bit about, you know, many of our obese patients or patients with obesity are uh, have hypertension as well. And what's the role of fentramine for those patients? So either the centrally acting adrenergic agents, fentramine or bupropion for that matter, if you're doing a contrary combination, um, primarily raise pulse rate and may have a small increase in blood pressure. Uh, what the rule of thumb is, if they have a history of hypertension, then if it's controlled with medications, you're fine. You can go ahead and start the medication. Um, if they don't have a history of hypertension, I don't necessarily ask them to check their blood pressure at home. I check them back in two to three months in my clinic. I used to do every month, and then I realized that rapidly was overwhelming. Um, if I'm uh, worried they're in a risk category, um, if historically their blood pressure has been 110 over 80, I don't really worry about it. If they're like 135 over 85, then I might have them check it at home a few times uh, and see if it goes up. Uh, but you can always just drop down the dose or stop it if you need to. The, I think the key point is though, having a history of hypertension is not a contraindication. In fact, you just need to get it managed and you can start them up. Nice talk. Thank you. One of the questions I would ask is that in terms of obesity, is it not necessarily, excuse me, an endocrine phenomenon, but actually a paracrine effect? in terms of in the hypothalamus? Um, well, I think we've pretty well established that the endocrine signaling system is very important for it. Uh, there is both paracrine and autocrine effects also in the hypothalamus, um, and that's uh, primarily you know, manifest in the people with uh, those primary genetic point mutations. But I'd say that um, it, there, the feedback signals uh, have been demonstrated to be very important from the periphery. In fact, we don't even know what they are yet for energy expenditure. So I'm not sure I would be able to characterize it, but I would not diminish and say that the, per the peripheral um, endocrine system is still very important. Hence our medications that we use that mimic the GIP or GLP-1 and PYY system. Is there a reason why you think that or that you brought that up? Yeah, I think in terms of it, just in terms of the local environment there in the hypothalamus, mm -hmm. and we know that in fact that the 
the brain is a very plastic organ mm -hmm. in terms of looking at the things. Yeah. And so that may explain again, you know, the increase in age in terms of that set point. Well, it, it's interesting. I'm aware of a, um, a very strong uh, line of evidence that is demonstrated in animal models and potentially in humans that under the influence of a high fat, high fructose diet, um, and even the, then the development of obesity, there's an increase in inflammation. Um, those tannin sites uh, enlarge and, and respond actually as if the brain is sort of under attack, uh, not an immunologic sense, but from a, a nutritional sense. And that inflammation is associated with obesity as well. So that could be a local environmental thing too. Certainly the brain is plastic. Uh, I have no doubt about that. And I think what is fascinating, we, we have a lot of room to move in terms of understanding is the impact of those developmental changes for children, pubertal changes, um, the uh, rebound, uh, adiposity rebound in infancy, plus all the, also these hormonal transition states for women. Many thanks. Uh, I want to call out a couple of quick comments and questions from online here. Um, first off, uh, internal medicine physician Dr. Molly Olson in Hood River um, has established a weight management clinic and primary care since 2015 and is eager to have partners in the region and within Providence. And some questions, of course, about any logistical tips regarding coverage of semaglutide, as yeah. well as some concerns about national shortage for this drug. So uh, very good questions. We um, so there yeah, the the obvious first answer is if you have a patient diagnosed with diabetes, they could be eligible for using semaglutide. Uh, now it doesn't mean it's covered by every insurance company, but you can oftentimes use that. Um, and you may or may not be aware that the American Diabetes Association has indicated that if you have the appropriate patient someone who's at high risk for heart disease, which you could sort of make a case for a lot of our patients with diabetes, or um, uh, who has you know, renal disease or heart failure, they could be eligible for treating with uh, higher levels of GLP-1 or just starting GLP-1 receptor agonist independent of A1C. So what we're recognizing is these treatment modalities for diabetes, which any of them are good at microvascular reductions. So blindness, you know, retinopathy, neuropathy, nephropathy. Really, the GLP-1 receptor agonists, SD2 inhibitors, are, are also macrovascular treatment options independent of A1C. Um, so basically, I don't have a good way around that otherwise. Um, there are some online uh, companies that employ physicians who do obesity management who all their job is you pay them a fee and they will, will hound your insurance company to try to get it covered now. Um, but uh, we are working on getting broader coverage. We first have to get recognition of obesity um, management by insurance companies, by employers. We're working now with Oregon Health Plan right now has an exclusionary clause in um, its um, policy against anti-obesity medications. So Oregon Health Plan will cover bariatric surgery, but they won't cover the medications. Um, and that was true across the country um, up until recently in almost every Medicaid across the country. Now uh, there are 15 who have had that repealed. We're working on getting the repealed here. California just repealed there. So if you were actually living in California you, you could, and you're on Medicaid, you could have these medications. As of January 1st, if you're a federal employee with Blue Cross Blue Shield, you can have access to semaglutide. If you're a VA patient, you can have access to semaglutide. 
so it's it's really a patchwork quilt right now um, and you just gotta be dogged well many thanks i do want to be respectful that we're at our nine o'clock hour uh clearly we will have to have you back again dr Pernell. thank you so much <laughs>